This is Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. You can have the nation's art at your fingertips by visiting artuk.org, and you can also socialize with us on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at Farron Gibson and Art UK at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. This is part two of our two-part episode on presidential portraits with Kim Sayet, director of the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. Last time, we looked at the origins of the gallery and an iconic portrait of George Washington with interesting connections to the UK. In this half, we'll take a look at some more modern portraits. First up is a portrait of Franklin D. Roosevelt, painted by Douglas Chandor in 1945. It was actually supposed to be a much larger picture. FDR was the only president in the United States to get elected three times. They made a change to the rules because, of course, we were in the middle of the Second World War, and he dies in his third term of office. But as you, I'm sure, and your listeners know, um, there had been lots of conversations between Churchill and FDR, and Churchill had been asking America to get involved in the war, and they came into the Second World War very late after the bombing on Pearl Harbor. Eventually, of course, peace happens, and the artist had in mind this big history picture showing the signing of the Treaty of Peace at Yalta. Um, In one corner was uh, Churchill, another right in the middle was Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, and in the other corner was Joseph Stalin of Russia. And it never um, actually came to be because Stalin refused to sit for the picture. And so when he actually does the portrait of the president, he can't help himself. He sticks it in the little corner. um, And so you can sort of get a sense of what this big history picture might have been. And what you see, in fact, is in this very sort of sophisticated uh, cape. It's a black uh, cape with velvet. He's smoking a cigarette in a cigarette holder, which today looks very sort of precious, if you like, and a, a little very bit fancy. sort of... fancy, yeah. Yeah, very <laughs> fancy. And then you see at the bottom of the picture just his hands, which are kind of fascinating. Hands holding a pencil, hands holding his glasses, um, hands um, smoking a cigarette, these hands. The companion portrait to this of Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife, is actually in uh, the White House and is coming to the Portrait Gallery for our exhibition in the fall. The other really interesting thing about this is that, you know, um, Franklin Roosevelt was in a wheelchair towards the end of his presidency and you have very few pictures of him in his wheelchair because he felt that to be seen in that way was a sign of weakness And back then, he managed to quite successfully control that image. There's a very famous moment where um, a newspaperman manages to take a picture of him in the wheelchair, and um, President Roosevelt demands, has has somebody take the camera away from the journalist, take the film out of the camera and give it back. And this idea that back then you could still try as you might control your image I think nowadays we'd all agree that that's just not ever going to be possible yeah, <laughs> with yeah. everyone's it got a already camera. been on the internet but yeah. yeah yeah exactly another president who was a key figure during the second world war was Dwight D Eisenhower before leading on the Normandy invasion and commanding the allied forces in Europe he directed troops and in invasions of North Africa and Italy 
A portrait of him in the Imperial War Museum collection by Henry Marvel Carr shows him in uniform, seated in front of a map of Tunisia. He's slightly rotated in his chair, and he looks out at the viewer with a piercing stare. The National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C. shows a similar portrayal of Eisenhower in their presidential portrait. Ours is dated to 1947 by the artist Thomas Edgar Stevens of um, the then General Dwight David Eisenhower. He later on becomes president. I have a, an interesting story related to that, actually. When I first came to the Portrait Gallery almost eight years ago, I had already uh, known fairly well as a friend the granddaughter of um, Eisenhower, Susan Eisenhower. And we went out for lunch and she said, listen, I really have a problem with that portrait of um, my grandfather that's in the American President's Gallery. And I said, why? And she said, well, everyone here knows, everyone in the State Department will tell you that when someone becomes President of the United States, they have to renounce any allegiance to any one branch of the military. And in that picture, he's very much in his army uniform. Um, you can see his, um, you know, he's holding his cap and he's got his sort of um, his colours and he's very much the, the army man. And so it, that does not work to be in the president's gallery. So we ended up being able to um, borrow a portrait by the same artist, but this time of the president, and it was taken while he was in office, in a suit, in a pinstripe suit. Um, that's also very handsome. And then we put the uh, military picture upstairs with the other military um, uh, people such as Patton and um, MacArthur and others like that. In recent years, two portraits that got many people talking were those of Barack and Michelle Obama. The stunning graphic quality of each image immediately distinguishes them from other portrait styles in the presidential gallery and offers a fresh contemporary approach. Let's first look at Barack Obama's portrait by Kahinde Wiley. He is seated in a chair looking directly out at you, but one of the things that everyone comments on is in fact this background, this floral um, background that he's, this garden that he's seated. Now if you recall, I mentioned that, you know, having overt symbolism is something that we don't particularly look for in presidential portraits. And in this case, it's very, very subtle. There are all of these flowers. So for example, there are these small rosebuds that are the symbol of love. As we know, every Valentine's Day, we you know, give roses to each other. There are these sort of tri-colored, sort of fluffy looking flowers that are called chrysanthemums. And uh, they're the official flowers of Chicago, where, of course, um, Barack Obama came from. Uh, he was a, a, an activist there, a community activist, and grew up. Um, there's also the African lily that harks back to his father's heritage from Kenya. And these white flowers that are um, jasmine. And there's a form of jasmine that makes up the lays in Hawaii, where, of course, Barack Obama also spent time, and Indonesia. And so in some ways, he's in this kind of garden of his own biography, of his, of his history that is really unusual and is very vibrant, very green. And as the artist Kehende Wiley said at the opening, it's almost like he's floating in there. It's sort of untethered to any real kind of ground or, or floor. Though the image may initially seem to some as a departure from traditional portraits, Wiley did thorough research into other presidential portraits, and his depiction of Obama is firmly rooted in art history. Kim notices the influence of a couple of portraits in particular. 
One is a portrait by George Peter Alexander Healy of Abraham Lincoln, where he's also seated in a chair. He's also got this sort of white shirt on, very thoughtful. And we know that Barack Obama very much admired Lincoln. In fact, when he announced his presidency, it was in Springfield, Illinois, the hometown of Lincoln. He swore um, at the inauguration on the Lincoln Bible and the unveiling of our portrait in the gallery was on Lincoln's birthday on February the 12th. Was that on purpose? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Very much um, in honour of, of Abraham Lincoln. I understand from the historian um, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who wrote uh, The Team of Rivals, a sort of an excellent book about um, Abraham Lincoln, that uh, Barack Obama would occasionally ring her up and say, what would Lincoln do in this situation? <laughs> so That's it's very much, yeah, yeah, it's very much a sort of a link, I think, to Lincoln. The other portrait that I also believe is sort of fascinating, also a seated portrait, and a lot of green and very big, is by the only female artist, unfortunately, at the moment that we have, who's done a presidential portrait hanging, um, by Elaine de Kooning of John Fitzgerald Kennedy of 1963. Elaine, you know, famous last name, she was married to the Dutch artist Willem de Kooning, and she loved painting um, with lots of colour. And so he's got all of this green and yellow and a gold, as she said. She said that she wanted JFK to have a golden glow because he had this aura of vitality and energy around him. And I think you can see the two portraits, the symbolism there and the, the likenesses there. And the other picture that I think also Kehinde would be looking at is George Walker Bush, number 43, the, the, the younger uh, President Bush of 2008 by Robert Anderson. And in this case, again, he's seated looking straight out at you, very, very similar to the Barack Obama picture. Of course, we know that they're friends and the First Ladies, Laura Bush and Michelle Obama are friends. And it has similarities in that he's uh, much more relaxed. He um, has an open neck shirt, no tie, neither of them are wearing ties. And I think, again, you can sort of see similarities. So While Kehinde broke with a whole lot of sort of traditions and it's very sort of striking in the gallery, it's big, it's colourful, it's got all these floral, you know, symbols, he also was looking back in time and and has kind of moved forward the idea of what a presidential portrait could look like while still also looking back at what's come beforehand. Next, let's look at the story behind Amy Sherrill's portrait of Michelle Obama. To me, it's part of the national conversation about leadership, about power, about gender dynamics, about racial diversity. And the artist was very deliberate. You see Michelle Obama sitting in this kind of beautiful geometric dress. And the artist Amy uh, Sherald and the First Lady really work together. It's a, a dress by a designer based in um, Baltimore called Michelle Smith. Her label was Millie. And they liked it because it looks really kind of modern, sort of constructivist, if you think of Distale and, and that sort of modernist movement. But it also reflects the once enslaved women of G. Bend um, and their quilt, the quilting tradition that was very strong in the African-American uh, community. 
She's in a kind of robin eggs blue background and interestingly she actually sat outside for her portrait but one of the things that's elicited a lot of conversation is the gray skin color and the artist said that she did not want to have the first lady defined by the color of her skin she saw her as this archetypal strong woman it's like in this dress is like a big pyramid and she's at the top of it and she's very anchored by this dress and she's looking directly out at you and she's not smiling she's not frowning she's a very thoughtful introspective sort of look in many ways she's channeling the history of african-american portraiture remember of course that if you were once enslaved there was no way that you were going to get a portrait done of yourself unless, in fact, you might have been someone's nanny or a housekeeper or or sort of a a symbol of status and power that might be standing in the background of a portrait. The first time you really get agency for African-Americans under their own terms is with the Kodak camera, with a little brownie camera, and that, of course, was in black and white. And the artist Amy Sherald has with her a beautiful black and white photograph of her grandmother, um, very sophisticated woman wearing a beret, but again it's in black and white. So in some ways by making the skin colour of Michelle Obama, this grey tone is also going all the way back to the history of African American portraiture and sort of again, just like the uh, Kende Wiley of Barack Obama, Amy Sherald is looking to the past to create and reinterpret it into a new and really exciting and thoughtful future. Before Kim and I finished our conversation, I asked for her thoughts on why she thinks portraits like these hold continued importance in society and culture today. I think, and I could be wrong here, I think that Brits, um, people from the UK, sort of measure time by their royalty, right? You hear about the Victorian era, the Edwardian era, um, the Elizabethan era, In America, we measure it by who was in the White House. So, you know, the period of Ronald Reagan or Lincoln. um, And we also often associate it with wars, the First World War, the Second World War, the Civil War. And so those two things go hand in hand. I think that we very much measure time by who was in the White House at that moment and what was happening socially at that moment with these presidents. And so for people coming through the galleries, I think it also helps give a real good overview of sort of the arc of time. You know, we all get so caught up in the what's happening at this moment, whether you agree or disagree with what's happening politically, everyone has an opinion. But when you come into the galleries and you realise all the different challenges and all the different leadership styles of the different presidents, you get a, a bit more of a perspective that things warp and weft and change and flex and we all change with it. I think one of the advantages too is that we write 140 words in English and in Spanish, we do everything in two languages, about that president. And we're very honest, you know, when it comes to Andrew Jackson, for example, we talk about the Trail of Tears and we talk about the genocide of the Native American people that he helped um, enable. We do talk about impeachment. We talk about, of course, with uh, Richard Nixon and the Watergate scandal. So we're very, we try to be very open and bipartisan about how we talk in retrospect historically about the presidents. And we keep, you know, updating the information as people think differently and new ways of thinking about America comes along. 
That's all for this two-part episode. My thanks to Kim Sayet and the team at the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery who helped make this episode possible. Be sure to check out their podcast, Portraits, to hear even more interesting stories about the people and images in their collection. As always, thank you for listening, and please join us again next time. <laughs>